Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. I am by John Clare. There's actually three poems by this name, but we're starting with the one that starts, I am, yet what I am, none cares or knows. First published in 1848 and uh, composed in late 1844 or 1845. Clare is uh, thought of as one of the great poets of nature, uh, sort of uh, the, the, the landscape artist of his time in words. He's also thought of as the most important of the sort of untutored uh, working man poets. The idea, of course, has a certain kind of snobbery and class consciousness built into it, but the idea of this fellow who was uh, basically an early 19th century or mid 19th century poet uh, being remarkable because, oh my goodness, isn't he able to use words well, even though he is a farm laborer, um, <laughs> sort of drove his reputation for a while. And then his reputation faded as the the pleasure of looking down on the economically uh, more challenged uh, seemed a little bit less uh, pleasurable. Uh, however, his reputation has come back in a different form. And these days, he's genuinely admired as a great poet. Interestingly, although the vast majority of his poetry that is most widely cited for his significance as a poet still has to do with nature, his single most well-known poem is the one that we're going to be uh, reading and discussing today, sometimes called Lines I Am or I Just I Am. Um, and its relationship to nature poetry is itself, uh, well, why don't we wait? Should I read it? Mm-hmm. Please do. I am. Yet what I am, none cares or knows. My friends forsake me like a memory lost. I am the self-consumer of my woes. They rise and vanish in oblivious host like shades in love and death's oblivion lost. And yet I am and live with shadows tossed into the nothingness of scorn and noise, into the living sea of waking dreams where there is neither sense of life nor joys, but the vast shipwreck of my life's esteems. And in the dearest that I loved the best are strange, nay, rather stranger than the rest. I long for scenes where man has never trod, a place where woman never smiled or wept, there to abide with my creator, God, and sleep as I in sweet childhood sweetly slept, untroubling and untroubled where I lie. 
the grass below, above the vaulted sky. I, f I first heard about this um, poem uh, while w watching a TV show that got canceled. And they recycled the um, the scene where the character reads this poem yes. at the end to end the show. And it it was an abrupt cancellation. Uh, the show was called Penny Dreadful. And the main character uh, named himself John Clare. I didn't know who John Clare was, but he named himself John Clare because he was Frankenstein's creature and thus nameless. And I think the entire um, naming of himself is based on how lonely and how horrible this poem is in that sense of loneliness. And so brilliance and loneliness combined and madness combined. It's a haunting poem. Well, it is. The madness, though, um, that's not in the poem. I, I don't agree at all. I think the second stanza is 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 and even the i think the whole thing is madness right it's i don't know myself as well as would you I can't. would you have come to that conclusion had you not known about claire's biography uh i i think i might have actually because there are there are we should we should, we should just be explicit that claire spent the the last years of his life um in an insane asylum Mm -hmm. uh, he was sufficiently unusual that he genuinely believed himself at one time or another to be either Byron or Shakespeare or both. And uh, he claimed that in an earlier, you know, that now he was Claire, but once he had been Byron and before that he had been Shakespeare. And he actually produced his own versions of some of their works saying, well, this is how I would write them now. Mm -hmm. So, um, his madness is uh, is something that's well known biographically, but he is not well known biographically. And so I'm I'm really asking when you use the word madness, I, 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 a larger question, perhaps, and that is to what extent do we read a poem knowing things from outside the poem? Mm. We can tell from the very language that this isn't written in the 16th century and not in the 21st century. So automatically we know some things. What about the biographical things that we may or may not know? Um, I know the guy was mad, but to be candid, I didn't read this as the expression of a mad mind. So I'm asking you then both what I asked at first, do you really see madness in the poem and then whether or not we agree that madness is visible or audible in the lines of the poem, what difference does or should it make to know that the actual man who wrote it was writing it from in an asylum from which he never really left? Yeah. So I, I would say I, I as long as I, I can't I can't I can't say whether I knew he was in an asylum when I heard the poem or not. What I can tell you is that I understand um, I, I, I live near people who I know who are mad in the traditional, you know, 19th century version of that. They, they believe in things that aren't true and make no sense. It's as if 
they are in a waking dream. Um, there's somebody I know who has uh, schizophrenia in my view. Um, not a doctor, but I know what the symptoms look like and this person has these symptoms. And one of the things that happens is you have this in, in having a conversation with someone who um, is or trying to have a conversation with someone who is of this kind of madness. Um, you find that their logic is dream logic if if it's anything. Um, and I see that throughout here and seeing the. Uh, the horror of the isolation caused by um, this ki kind of madness is what this poem to me is about. It's it's not as much as an existential poem as it is a despairing poem of of what the what a disease has caused. Wow. For loss. Uh, I, I guess this is this is going to be one work in which we are likely we'll see how this conversation develops, Jesse. We're likely to uh, to take different views. There are many works. Uh, Alice in Wonderland comes to mind where we certainly are in a dream world. Uh, in fact, it's called that. Um, there's a waking from it. And at the very end of the second volume through the looking glass that we are asked, which dreamed it? Uh, are we dreaming the world? Is Alice dreaming the world of Wonderland or, um, is a character in Wonderland dreaming the life of Alice? Um, and yet there's no, uh, presumption, even though, uh, the question of madness arises the Mad Hatter being an obvious example, uh, there's no presumption that this is a story about madness. It's a story about, in fact, the relationship between a dream world and a real world. And it is, in fact, among other things, an existential inquiry. And there's no question uh, that I've heard raised that, uh, that Lewis Carroll, Charles Lutwidge Dodson, was, in fact, mad. Mm -hmm. So... Um, that this is a dreamscape and that, that the dreams are fierce ones, call them nightmares if you like, does not to me argue that the issue is madness. And I would say that the fact of the, the, the poem being known as I am and beginning with the words I am uh, does make me think that it is an existential inquiry. What does it mean to be? Mm -hmm. I am... I don't know how, maybe you do, because you're a terrific biblio uh, uh, file. I, I don't know how Claire originally wrote it, but in the edition that I am looking at, it says, I am, colon. Mm -hmm. And in a way, all the rest of the poem could be viewed as an exposition of what I am can mean. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the very first thing I thought of when... Uh, reading the poem on the page is, you know, that Descartes line, uh, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And I am fairly confident that there's something wrong with Descartes' uh, formulation of, you know, his, uh, his understanding, the building up of the world, um, by simply existence. And I think that formulation is very carefully 
um, exploded in this poem. I'm not saying that Claire is necessarily, you know, wrestling with Descartes. I'm saying that I think that this is a this is a serious problem, and it it, it to me the that's always been the problem with Descartes is that he thinks he he thinks he can build up a whole world from this simple proposition, I think or I am, therefore, um, and that's how this first line starts. I am colon, <laughs> and then instead of saying I'm building up this world um, of all the things I understand. It is a, a tearing down of the world and a, sort of a longing for uh, a simplicity. I find this to be a very traumatic and tearful poem rather than a, you know, an uplifting one. Or I'm not sure how how you anal- analyze it, but to me, it's it's a, a, a tearing down and sort of laying bare rather than a building up. I think that uh, your connection with Descartes is superb. I had not thought of that, Jesse. Um, and I think, as you say, it may be unintended. Uh, nonetheless, philosophically, it is uh, dead on. Uh, I do view this as an existential poem. And one of the things that I notice repeatedly here is uh, the difference between just being an existence. Um, I too, by the way, have some questions about the utility of Descartes. My preferred way of uh, citing that famous quotation is cogito ergo cogito sum. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, therefore, I think I am. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's wrong with that, one of the things that's wrong with that is really clear here in Claire. There's no other. That's right. That's the problem. Yet I am. Yet what I am, none cares or knows. So uh, we've got two things going on here. Um, If you happen to be locked away in an asylum, as Claire was, or if you happen to be simply distasteful or curmudgeonly or um, afraid to go out into the world, it may be that no one cares about who you are. But in some other sense, I mean, mean, we've known each other for years, Jesse, but in some sense, I don't know you. (laughs) You know, you don't know me. Uh, Mm -hmm. People have things about themselves that they themselves may not even know what is mm-hmm. real knowledge of an other. So in a way, that first line, I am, yet what I am, none cares or knows. An ordinary reader, not a mad person at all, an ordinary reader might say, well, there are people who care about me, but you know, come to think of it, there's no one who really, really knows me. Mm-hmm. You know, So this poem from the very first line asks us to to recognize that I am is in contrast to um, a life that's embedded in society. I am yet what I am, none cares or knows. My friends forsake me like a memory lost. And so once he felt he had a connection, once at least people cared, but that doesn't mean that they really knew. Um, in fact, there are a couple of ways to read that line. Um, you can read it, my friends forsake me 
like a memory lost forsakes me. That yep. I, I, once a memory is gone from me, uh, once it has abjured me, um, it's it's out of my world. Um, they disappear from the life so completely um, that that they don't even know uh, that I exist. Or my friends forsake me like memories that are lost to those friends. Right? My my friends have so forgotten their memory of me that I have been forsaken by them. So here there are two different ways of looking. There's my friends forsake me like my memories that are lost and my friends forsake me like I am a memory lost to them. So again, it's I in existence alone or I as part of a social web, the two ways of reading that line. And frankly, as I go through the whole of this poem, it seems to me again and again, there's this balance, you know, yes, yes, I exist. I am. Mm-hmm. But what does it mean to say that I am if I am in relation to nothing else? So you get that strange line um, where the word esteems is used as a noun mm-hmm. into the nothingness of scorn and noise into the living sea of waking dreams where there is neither sense of life nor joys, but the vast shipwreck of my life's esteems. Well, esteem, that's a noun here. I mean, what were his life's esteems? Were they the things that he in his life esteemed? Were they the esteem that others held him in, say, because he was already acknowledged as a great poet 25 years earlier than this? Um, what's an esteem? He, we don't know whether it's the self or the other that's involved, but either way, there's a vast shipwreck. So the sadness that you see in this poem, I, I too feel deeply, uh, but I do think of it as coming from this persistent questioning. Is it possible to be an I without there being a we? Is it possible to be a person um, without there being an other? Aristotle says no, by the way. Mm-hmm. There's no such mm-hmm. thing as a single human being. Um, but you know, I, this is not Aristotelian. Uh, it's not a, a, a logical, precise, careful argument for positions. But where it ends up, you know, since I can't find these things, you know, since people, even the people who are close to me are, in fact, so far from me that they are the furthest from me because I had expected them to be closer. It's always this I versus or and this other. Um, he ends up by saying uh, that he wants to abide in a place that men have never trod and women have never swept, smiled or wept. Uh, interesting that two lines, right? So it's men. Mm-hmm. Men have action. And women have emotions, right? But he wants to be in a place that has had neither actions nor emotions. This poem applies equally well to men and to women. There to abide with my creator, God, right? Back to Descartes' argument, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I think, therefore, there is a God. There to abide with my creator, God, and sleep as I in childhood sweetly slept, He doesn't say he wants to act in this place. He doesn't say he wants to live in this place. He wants to sleep in this place, untroubling and untroubled. See, so untroubling, not dealing with the other and untroubled, not having a feeling in myself. 
-hmm. untroubling and untroubled where I lie, the grass below, above the vaulted sky. Now, that last line can be read so many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, In one way, you can say that this is Eden before the creation of Eve. Mm. Right? He's lying on the grass, untroubled and untroubling. There's no one there to trouble. And he is untroubled because he still hasn't eaten from the apple, uh, the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And above him is the vaulted sky. And vault, of course, is a word that's sometimes used for uh, coffin. So you, you look up and there he is, um, as good as dead, sleeping in a prelapsarian Eden. That's one way to read this. However... Again, we don't I don't know how Claire originally punctuated this. It doesn't say the grass below, comma, above, comma, the vaulted sky. It says the grass below, above the vaulted sky. So if he wants to abide with his creator, God, he could be in heaven above the vaulted sky, which, of course, would also put him make the grass be below. Mm-hmm. So you could read this as if he were in a prelapsarian Eden alone, which is so sadly for this speaker, the best choice that he can get, because if he can't really connect with even his friends who are more strange than anyone else, at least he can get together with his creator, God. Um, we can read him as in a prelapsarian Eden or moving away from Aristotle, but toward Plato we could be reading him as if he were still in the ideal heaven and have not yet been born onto this earth, right? The, Plato's idea of the soul before birth, mm-hmm. right? Fully self-contained, fully um, knowledgeable, and utterly inactive, and knowing no such thing as love. So it's it's almost to me it's it's almost like you could read this. This Claire wrote two like two thousand poems, um, and this I don't know if it was his last, but it was very near the end. And it, to me, it's almost like you could see this as a suicide note. I, as far as I know, he did not kill himself. Um, I think he he was he was elderly when he he died, I believe. Um, but to me, this is a this could be read as a suicide note. It's, and he does. It's if we read read the last stanza. I long for scenes where where man has never trod, a place where woman never smiled or wept, right? No emotion. There to abide with my Creator God. There to live, my Creator God, and sleep as I in childhood sweetly slept. You know, as a child, you you know nothing, right? Untroubling. And untroubled, right? Not causing people problems, and not being the cause, not having problems. Where I lie, the grass below, up above the vaulted sky. If we read it as him lying on the grass, staring up at or looking up at the at the sky, lying there unburied, so that there is no forced interaction with all the people he's troubled, and all the people. Um, who trouble him? Those who are it, I, I, this middle stanza with the metaphor of his life on a on a sea and his life being a shipwreck. 
the vast shipwreck of my life's esteems, all the things that I thought were wonderful, all the things that I think are wonderful, destroyed in a shipwreck, um, it's almost as if he wishes it could not be. He wishes it not to happen. And that that trauma causes him not just to be a, he says, an Ian, I read as even, and even the dearest that I love the best, those things, either my poems or the people, are strange. No, nay, st- rather stranger than the rest. You know, meeting a stranger, um, you know, you don't expect anything from them. You don't have anticipations. But in seeing people who you love, thinking you you are not who you are, not who I am, is going to be far worse than having a stranger have you in low esteem. And going back to the first stanza, I am the self-consumer of my woes. He is forsaken. His friends have forsaken him. And I understand this. When uh, my grandmother um, was getting rather elderly, uh, she became more and more demented uh, with some form of dementia, undiagnosed. But this is what happens. And I felt myself more and more unwilling to visit her because her her personality was going and she became less and less who she was and that traumatized me and I think it traumatized her this is a a powerful poem of I think of of um, of uh, like a moment of near clarity from a person who is not clear and I'm not making a pun of the guy's name. I'm just literally saying this is this is traumatizing. Um, I think to him. To I, I read some of the letters that he wrote a lot of letters to his friends. And one of the things that came up when I did a search for I am, he he, he was so optimistic. He's going to get out soon. Right? I'm going to be out of this place soon. And it just never happened. In fact, he was there 20 years after the writing of this poem. It's, cra- it's crazy that, uh, you know, we have this faith in, you know, ourselves, and yet it can go because of, you know, just getting older, you know, it's harder to form new memories. Uh, we remember our youth much better. Um, we lose our faculties. We, we lose our strength. And that isolation is horrific. And I think this poem amazingly captures it. I think you're right. Um, One of the the reasons that I wanted to remind us when we began this conversation about the significance of Claire as a nature poet is that, in fact, we don't really get any image of nature until the very last line. When he says that he would lie with the grass below above the vaulted sky, it is in desperation that he changes. He he turns to nature because that will never be any further or further or closer to him than it has always been. Um, 
and it makes you think back about the value of nature to him in his whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe he went to nature for solace because the solace that one would want in others, even before madness or before the notice of madness, is something that is reliable in a way that mere fickle people can never be. Um, and in this regard, he follows directly on the great romantic poets, including mm-hmm. one on whom he modeled himself, um, Byron, uh, who has, in fact, troubled heroes, uh, Byronic heroes, um, aren't Wordsworthy and heroes or Keatsian heroes, right? Um, they are Byronic heroes that cannot somehow fit into the world. And in fact, Byron was right there when, um, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein and it is her monster who is seen as one of the great prose Byronic heroes. And it is he who renames himself in Penny Dreadful, uh, mm-hmm. John Clare. I, I would like to point back in that first stanza, again, one of the multiple readings. Um, because the grammar is long, I have to get us to that, uh, the fifth line, I am yet what I am, none cares or knows. My friends forsake me like a memory lost. I am the self-consumer of my woes, a point you just uh, highlighted for us, that is, others should care about my woes, but I have to do it myself. They rise and vanish in oblivious host. That is, his woes don't think of themselves, and others don't think of him having woes. And here's the line, like shades in love and death's oblivion lost. There are at least two ways to read that, like shades in love and death's oblivion lost. That is, these these uh, vanished memories, these strange friends, they can be like shades in love, that is, ghosts who are in love, which therefore cannot really reach each other. You know, Paolo and Francesca in the, the Inferno in Dante, for instance, like shades in love, and also like death's oblivion lost, right? You, everything is gone in death. Mm-hmm. But another way to read it is as if de- love and death were a compound noun, like shades in love and death's oblivion lost, as if love and death are conjoined, as if the seeking of the other and the loss of the self are inextricably joined always. And that is what is lost to him. Um, Woody Allen said, death is an acquired trait. Um, And in a funny way, he's correct biologically. You know, single-celled organisms don't actually die, um, but multi-celled organisms do. Uh, And how do you get multi-celled organisms? They don't reproduce by fission. They reproduce by sex. So love and death come together. Um, And so there are two ways to read this poem. It's either shades of love and death or love and death seen as something you can't get past. Right. They are a single package. And when you realize this, which the poet realizes from the very first stanza, he works his way through its implications for himself as a stranger unloved by others in the second stanza to a wish that he could at least be by the side of his creator, where he will be sleeping, untroubled, supported by nature. It's uh, it is a very faint hope 
and that this is the best the man can do, the speaker can can come up with, makes makes me hurt for him. Mm. One thing I'm sure about is there's always more to say. <laughs>